Some of you may know the Buddhist wheel of becoming, the Bhava Chakka, which is a complicated pictorial uh, explanation of all kinds of fascinating things we're not going to talk about tonight. Uh, but in the midst of that are three animals. There's generally a pig that stands for not knowing, for delusion. The most intelligent of domestic animals has to stand for delusion, you know, so much for justice. Uh, the rooster stands for uh, greed because of its fascination for procreative habits. And the snake stands for aversion. Now, in some uh, of these uh, Bhava Chakas, the image is such that the rooster and the snake are coming out of the mouth of the pig, indicating that it is basically ignorance that gives birth to desire and ignorance that gives birth to aversion. Or more precisely, ignorance doesn't actually give birth to them, but it is under the influence of ignorance we're more prone to act out in forms of greed or in forms of aversion. As, in, as you probably know in Buddhist psychology, these two things are basically two different sides of the same coin. Uh, we cannot cultivate greed with, without at the same time also cultivating uh, aversion or forms of um, ill will. So, this delusion, not knowing thing, it has a couple of names. There's a, there's a form called moha, which is generally translated with delusion, and it often uh, speaks more of the psychological dimension of this not knowing. And then there is a form called avijja, which uh, is generally translated as ignorance, and that uh, speaks of the causal, the lack of a causal or conditional understanding of how things come about. This is a big term. This morning you heard John read out in the section on uh, contemplating mind that one of the aspects is uh, he or she knows the mind affected or afflicted by delusion. He or she knows the mind unafflicted by delusion. It goes fairly quick, such a small passage. And delusion is a strange word, ignorance is a strange word we're not quite clearly told how these qualities manifest. Yeah? While greed, if you have a certain intensity of greed or lust or craving, generally even you yourself begin to notice, you know, long after other people have noticed. Um, if the thing has a certain intensity, it becomes obvious even to yourself. Yeah? It, these things are self-declarative or self-declaring after a certain... Um, intensity. The same is true with aversion. If you're not, you know, initial stages of aversion may sound like sober critical assessments in your mind and other people see your mimic and recognize that you're right now, you're somewhere between mild nausea and um, aversion. You yourself may take a little longer to find out that actually what is acting out and speaking in quite reasonable voices in your head is in fact a form of aversion at, at work. But if this thing continues for a while or if it increases in intensity, you will notice. You, know, you will not be able to fool yourself over a long time and great intensities of this experience that this is not happening. So again, we can pick up on it. Now with delusion or with ignorance, it's a little more tricky. This quality, although quite potent, does not actually declare itself. You can be highly deluded and be utterly convinced of the validity of your opinions. You know? The other day I saw somebody had in his signature in a blog saying, uh, uh, often wrong, never in doubt. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> and something in me just kind of <laughs> went nodding. <laughs> this is delusion at work. Yeah? Um, I think there's a saying by Mark Twain, since we've lost direction, we've doubled our efforts. Yeah. So we do not necessarily, as is the case for greed and as is the case for aversion, we do not necessarily understand when ignorance or delusion is at work. Even if it's wildly rampant, we may still feel quite convinced of our convictions. We may still feel 
quite on top of things, we may still not be aware that we actually have fundamental forms of confusion at work here. So how does ignorance look? Well, the most simplest level of how ignorance looks is just a lack of vitality. It's lack of energy, lack of sensitivity. So the most simplest energetic level of ignorance is basically I'm not getting it. I'm too thick-skinned. I'm not awake enough. I feel there's nothing happening and yet there's lots happening. So just sheer lack of sensitivity. That'd be the first most fundamental layer of ignorance. I'm just not getting it. My senses are not sharp enough. My comprehension is not uh, having enough acumen. I'm not adding up what I actually pick up on. Uh, or I'm so preoccupied with something that I simply don't get it. Or I'm so unspeakably tired. Yeah. So one aspect of delusion is just lethargy, fatigue, tiredness, just this kind of, ah, uh, yeah. I believe the Tibetan tradition has a word for it called the sinking mind. Uh, so rather than the mind that is buoyant and rises up, you're kind of the sinking mind. Christian uh, contemplatives have also known something about this and called it achedia, you know, the sort of the sourness of mind as an affliction for contemplatives. On a second level, we have uh, ignorance that is basically a f denial. You know? It's the lack of acknowledgement of what takes place. You know? So I pick up on it, but it seems as if I'm not actually allowing myself to know what I pick up on. Lack of acknowledgement is a powerful mainstay of our un unawakened activity. Because we do not acknowledge what we actually deep down seem to have access to as, as, uh, as truth or as experience or as illustration of, uh, you know, in terms of the phenomena of our experience, we just don't add up. And that allows us to continue living with half-truths that guide our actions, that guide our behavior, that guide our uh, value finding. So denial is a real issue in practice. Anybody who's a, a meditator will come across this pattern that there is something and I'm doing my best to not acknowledge that this takes place. If you're a psychotherapist, you will know very well what I talk of. You know, denialists have one of the most astounding forces in the universe. You know, things can stare in people's faces, worse in my face, and I'm simply doing everything in the book to not acknowledge what everybody else could see at the first glance. We can deny the most impossible things. That's a dimension of experience. Then sometimes another dimension of ignorance is simple lack of information. I just don't know. You know. I just don't know anything about diets. I don't know anything about climate. I don't know anything about conditionality. Simple lack of information about complexity of phenomenal experience. Sometimes ignorance comes across as having a load of information. Most of us, I would suspect, are drowning in information. In fact, we, we need strategies to not get lost in piles of information that are of sometimes very dubious value or that we have to sift through to get out the, the good information or the information that is germane to our particular task or situation. So, Rather than having a lack of information, we have almost too much of it, or we do not know how to correlate information. We don't know how to, to get the bits together and arrange them in such a way that we begin to have an organic, digested whole, rather than a pile of ideas. And if somebody gives us a new piece of information, we just make the pile a little higher, without actually the pile being arranged in a functionally different way. Now, this is another type. Uh, of ignorance. We know a lot, but actually it doesn't change anything. We don't know what to do with it. We drown in it. Yeah? This seems to be particularly the case for our times. 
we have almost in any field so much easy access of information and so little wisdom to make use of that information in meaningful and truly transformative ways. Finally, there's another form of ignorance that um, is particularly painful. It's the ignorance that we know very well, we have access, we don't deny, we know how to correlate the wisdom, but somehow we lack the sustainability, the stamina, we lack the, the skill to live by what we know. We keep falling into things that we basically know are not good, or we basically know, uh, we know why it happens, we know how it could not happen, and yet we lack the strength or the resolve, or simply the skill to continue actually living from our insights. Or, um, let me try to get that more precise, you know, it's, in some way it's easy to have insight, you know, sparks fly fairly quickly if you're a little dedicated and if your conditions and your health is good and if you have reasonably decent support in this. Flying sparks you get quite quick. You know, sort of sparks of wisdom. But it's one thing to have a few f flying sparks, and it's another thing to actually translate or convert these flying sparks of insight into a genuine l wisdom from which you can live and which you can translate into action, into lived behavior. Yeah. So if you think of John reading this morning the piece he, meditator, he or she knows the deluded mind is deluded and knows the uh, mind not afflicted by delusion as not afflicted by delusion. Think of this not in simplistic ways. You know, delusion, ignorance is the most fearsome of all the hindrances. If you're not happy with your self-judgment, if you're not happy with your greed, if you're not happy with your aversions, um, have a look out, be on the lookout for the delusion bit, because that doesn't come with a big sign around its neck saying, I'm delusion. Yeah. However intense it's at work. Often it comes across as just not getting or confused or slightly bewildered and then back to normal and business as usual. Yeah? So there's many, many ways delusion can uh, rear its head. So footnote closed. Uh, I wanted to say something about the Brahma-viharas because I believe they are powerful and underestimated and um, um, sometimes I, yeah, there are points where, I, where I'm even unhappy about their depiction in, in some forms of Buddhist teaching because I, uh, the older I get, the more I come to appreciate the, the profundity of these teachings. Yeah? Brahma-viharas means Divine abidings is one translation. Another translation is the immeasurables, qualities of the heart that uh, basically speak of our non-separateness and that have, if refined and brought to fruition, uh, a boundless quality. Uh, you know them. You have heard them. We have spoken a lot about metta, friendliness, or uh, my co-teachers will forgive me, loving kindness, uh, karuna, compassion, um, its older form is anukampa, which means something like trembling along with. And then we have mudita, which is joy or sympathetic joy, and we have upeka, which is equanimity. These four qualities of um, the heart occur on many different levels. Now, it's not necessarily obvious how important they are. I remember when I began meditating, this was basically, this was the soft option for people who couldn't concentrate, Yeah. They were just kind of, they'll, you would teach them to be basically nice, okay? Yeah. <laughs> doesn't get you awakened, fair enough. Doesn't make you concentrated, you don't get any jhanas, but you're not going to do collateral damage, so it's just, just kind of be nice. Yeah. From my somewhat, I believe, rudimentary understanding of the, not just uh, the role, but also the placement of these teachings in Buddhist uh, traditions, I, uh, I believe I've come a long way and I understand now that there is no notion of happiness, no notion of liberation, no notion of health, 
no notion of maturity, no notion of realization, no notion of growth, where these four Brahmaviharas are not intrinsic part of. Yeah? As far as I'm concerned, these four Brahmaviharas are what our health systems lack as a vision. Yeah? If you want a field theory for human happiness, uh, these, these are the Brahmaviharas. So any notion of development, any notion of realization, of freedom, of fulfillment, of growth, of maturity, of progress, from a Buddhist point of view, does need to entail these four Brahmaviharas. If you know enlightened people, that's how I expect enlightened people to behave. Loving and friendly, compassionate, joyful, and capable of holding equanimous relationship. If they're not behaving that way, I suspect they're not enlightened. Yeah. So we have these Brahmaviharas occurring on a couple of levels. There's four different levels where they occur, as far as I can make out. Take this with the, the usual pinch of salt. I uh, don't claim uh, to be a finite project. Uh, I, I am definitely finite, but I'm not a finished project, let's put it like that. Um, I see on one level these Brahmaviharas as the expressions of a mind completely freed from greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's the expression of what we would call awakening. That's how I would expect an awakened being to be in the world. Notice these Brahmaviharas are above all things, they are relational qualities. We're not speaking of just mind states. More about this later. So if you have awakened beings in the world, that's how they're supposed to be behaving. Loving, compassionate, joyous, and um, equanimous. On another level, these Brahma-viharas are, <clears throat> we're changing now the polar opposite, these Brahma-viharas are innate capacities of the human mind. That's what constitutes our humanity. The capacity, the innate capacity, you don't have to earn it, you don't have to pay for it, you don't have to work hard on it. The innate capacity for these four dimensions of human empathy, you could call them forms of empathy, differing tones of universal empathy, these four Brahmaviharas are inbuilt. I believe personally they're hardwired, they're part of what makes you a human being. I'm not saying they're all there. You can be remarkably deluded and remarkably selfish and remarkably unkind, even though you may be intrinsically capable of those four patterns or four paradigms of the of human empathy. You may still be fairly they may still be fairly undeveloped, but you have the intrinsic capacity for this to grow in you. You have the intrinsic equipment. You've got the kit, basically, to be a human being. And this is if I believe this is the bedrock of uh, what makes up the kit of being a human being. Psychologists, it's important that you understand these do not fit into a developmental model. Yeah? Together with the refugees, these, there is many things that you can map neatly, and we, we're doing a lot of work to map things from uh, Buddhist psychology into Western terms, but neither Brahma-viharas nor... Um, refugees can really be mapped into a developmental model. I, cap I keep having an ongoing argument with all kinds of Buddhist psychologists who tell me that Brahmaviharas are complicated or complex emotions. I am of the firm opinion uh, that they are not complex emotions. Brahmaviharas may be also uh, on one of their stages uh, emotions, but they are not emotions because emotions are states and as soon as you have states you have lost that innate dimension I just mentioned. Yeah. So, on the most fundamental level, these four dimensions of human, the heart's capacity to resonate in forms of empathy, more loving, more compassionate, connecting with pain, more joyous, connecting with success, and more equanimous, still in relationship, but with uh, a bounded sense of me and you and with an acknowledgement of past and future and with an acknowledgement of the perfect in the imperfect, these four Brahma-viharas are there as a human 
as basically what constitutes our humanity in my books. That's my current understanding. Ask me in 10 years where I, what I've made of this. Uh, but I believe they have to be understood as that to make sense on the other levels. So there's another level, and that's this level is where these um, Brahma-viharas are expressions of the mind. They are actual friendliness as we experience the friendliness of ourselves or the friendliness of others for ourselves. On this level, the Brahma-viharas, compassion, joy, and uh, equanimity are virtues. You know? The kick about the virtue is you can practice it. You, know? you can strengthen it. You can build it up. You can develop. If you don't have it, you can recognize it in others. You can admire it and thereby maybe making it more likely that something you admire in others, rather be jealous of, uh, develops in yourself. You know? Because some of the stuff we can see in others is only possible to be, uh, we can only see in others because in some deep way we all already resemble them, resemble it in some way. Yeah? The kind of, mm, Socrates has been talked about quite a bit in this retreat, um, the, so the Socratic notion that all, all learning, all, all cognition is recognition. Yeah? We only recognize what we, we can only learn what we already in some way know and we recognize it by learning. Um, so Brahma-viharas as the recommended mode of being in the world with others. Yeah? Brahma-viharas as being the, the basic recommendation of the Buddha for the human park, the human zoo. Yeah? That's what we're encouraged to live from when we live with others in differing paradigms of empathy. On a third, and maybe the most famous, or on the, this kind, in this kind of list, it's the fourth level, the Brahma-viharas are states of mind. And they are meditation objects. That's probably what Theravada tradition has made most of, the teaching of Brahma-vihara, and more or less squeezed it into that one dimension. Brahma-viharas have become meditation objects to make the mind peaceful, to make the mind malleable for stillness and calm, to make the mind protected, and to make the mind feel good, to, to make the mind gain deep states of uh, stillness. That's the bit which is famous in Theravada commentarial tradition. And it's there. I, I'm the last one to speak against it. Uh, I do have some feelings that the other three layers shouldn't be uh, neglected. Yeah. Well, the layer of being the expression of a completely awakened mind, that doesn't need much work. You know? Basically, we know this is how awakened people are supposed to behave. Um, and as long as we, we, we don't meet people who claim that, and as long as we haven't found awakening ourselves, we don't need to worry about this dimension a lot. Yeah? But the other two layers, I really wouldn't want to miss. The first layer that acknowledges the innate capacity of empathy in these four dimensions for every being, and for every at least human being, let's be a little more precise here, and particularly the second layer, namely the paradigm of these four Brahma-viharas as the recommended modes of how to relate to other humans. Now, how would that translate? How would that translate in psychological language? Or maybe let me do a little interlude here. I've used the term empathy, and it's important to understand that there are people who claim that, uh, that empathy is um, not an accurate term for these Brahma-viharas. Um, why is that the case? Because empathy is generally identified with the receiving quality. It's, it speaks of sensitivity, and it speaks of sensitivity in its receiving dimension. This is particularly pertinent for the second one, where compassion um, is a lot about receiving and about cultivating sensitivity for that which is painful and that which reminds us in the suffering of others, of our own suffering. So the basis of our own 
recall of how this being suffers makes us more sensitive to the suffering of others. And the important part in here is, in, in Buddhist psychology, this sensitivity is backed up with something like a willingness to action. In fact, even stout-hearted action. It's not a helpless sensitivity. It's a sensitivity that is coupled with um, determination to minimize suffering. If we can help, let's try to help. If we can not fix it, let's try to at least ameliorate it. If we cannot ameliorate it, then let's at least try to um, comfort. If we cannot comfort, then at least let's not let the suffering being be alone on its own in the suffering of its, you know, in intense suffering. So there's a kind of a, a stratum, a diff, differing strata of uh, activity. Tibetan iconography has it very nice. The Bodhisattva of Compassion, Avalokiteshvara, um, has a, a wrathful aspect, you know. Wrathful aspect has a couple of arms, and in those arms uh, has all kinds of things in there, which uh, do speak of fairly potent activity. You know, can act quite decisively and help in a protective sort of way. Yeah? So uh, Tibetan traditions have understood the, the double nature of compassion. It's not just uh, the, the kind of misericordia, yeah? the, uh, the capacity to resonate with the pain of a situation, but it is a type of resonance that galvanizes into action, into protective action, into healing action, into stout-hearted activity if need be, um, into an action that is geared to alleviate the pain we have become sensitive towards. So this term empathy, you know, this is not just a nicety of Buddhists that Buddhists have picked up. You know, you have to understand that uh, the human uh, mind's capacity to empathy is basically what has made us uh, successful as a species on this planet. If you want to rate our number on this planet as a success story, the sheer fact that there's so many of us and that we've We've made it down from the trees and out of the bushes and live in cities and have invented the water closet and flown to the moon and uh, can have started Twitter feeds. If you want to rate it as a success story on this planet, then it is not due to our fantastic climbing skills or our swimming skills or our huge chores or our you know, perfected predatory habits or so. If it is due to anything, then it is due to the capacity to, to be working together, to be doing things in little clusters, in little teams, in little clans, in little tribes. And the only way this thing works together is if members of whatever unit you have are actually picking up what's going on with the other members and they're capable to resonate with that in some attuned fashion. Yeah? And suddenly you find out uh, that, you know, together we can chase the mammoths over the cliff. Yeah? And then we all have to eat. You know? I couldn't do it on my own, you couldn't do it on our own, but you know, if we get together, a few of us, we can do it. Yeah? But for that togetherness to occur and to happen and to be ready, I need to put up with you. You know, and your wife and your granny and your, you know, whoever is there. I need to, and, your, and your offspring. I need to put up with you. I need to team up in some way. And this teaming up uh, is probably the most formative uh, element in the development of the human brain. I'm speaking quite physiologically here. Um, you know, the gradual involvement of the male into the rearing and upbringing of, of the young is a, is a project that has taken quite some time and it looks like it's still not quite completed. Uh, but involving the male in the tribal situation basically stabilizes the social situation for a pregnant woman or for a little child in such a way that these people can become more dependent and that in turn makes it possible that um, a human being can be taught more things. Yeah. That can be slower in its development. If you have little kangaroos falling out of their mother's bellies, basically they climb up a pair of hairy legs and find a little pouch and tit in there. Um, human beings, if you just do that with them, they die. Yeah. You, they need a lot of maintenance. 
to get to the point where they can even feed themselves. Yeah? So this is a long-term project, and this only is possible through empathy, through increasingly large bodies of people who are looking out for each other and willing to put up with each other and understand uh, let's say it makes sense to have grandparents, you know, because grandparents, you know, double the amount of experience that can be passed on to a, a little one by a whole generation. Yeah. So suddenly, what I have learned can go not just to my kids, but it can go to my grandkids as well. Yeah. That means the grandkid gets a bigger dosage of information, of experience, of support. Yeah. And that's how human beings became Homo sapiens sapiens. Very clearly. I mean, you could delineate it uh, a lot more specifically, uh, but the growth of the neocortex was directly related to social stability formed by tribes of, you know, previous human beings, or not quite as human beings as we like to believe of ourselves. Yeah? So empathy is not just a Buddhist nice, nice term or so. Yeah? Empathy is really powerful. And this empathy has stark or powerful consequences in our social stru structures, in our physiological structures, yeah? um, and obviously um, in our self-understanding. If we believe to be protrusions, uh, uni-monolithic uni protrusions into a hostile universe, then this is one self-construct. If I believe myself to be part of a community or to be belonging to a tribe or to a a society or at least a subculture, that makes for a very different self-construct, isn't it? My needs, I can hold my needs in differing ways. Um, I, can, uh, I can be a lot less mistrustful. I can focus on things uh, and while other people focus on other things and somehow that makes, makes it possible that we can build cities, universities, we can build complex structures that one of us could never, however gifted he or she was, could never figure out. Yeah? In other words, we start building an, an, an edifice of civilization. And the glue in that is empathy. So if you look at it that way, and these Brahma-viharas are really powerful, uh, I don't even know what to call them, powerful uh, components or, or the fabric of, of development, of growth, of connectedness. Let's look at them a little more detailed. <clears throat> Psychologically, meta, the tone of empathy that is specific to someone or something and in that tone of friendliness, I am relating in a fairly specific way to something particular. I'm not just in a sort of bland way, warmly fuzzy towards uh, everything out there. I am quite capable of discerning specificity in my capacity to be empathetic or in my capacity to be friendly. Yeah? I may be friendly with many people, but I am not, I, I'm picking up who I have in front of me. It doesn't mean I'm just sort of in a, uh, in a bland, fuzzy, warm uh, bubble, kind of an elbow length away from everything that could have a sharp edge or that could not smile back at me. Yeah? This is not empathy in the terms of meta. Meta is quite specific. In terms of psychology, there are a number of moves in there. One of them is or capacity to orient to something specific. Another aspect is actually showing interest, turning towards, not just noticing, but actually turning towards, um, welcoming, creating availability, and then gradually starting to resonate. Yeah. Now you notice these are all movements of both intention and attention. And uh, that's why John and Christina have uh, pointed out, if we uh, make metta, just a nice, warm, good feeling. Wonderful if you have that feeling. But what do you do when you don't have that feeling? Yeah. But if you understand metta as a practice of intention and attention, if you get the warm, fuzzy feeling, wonderful. But if you don't get that feeling, you still can practice intentionality and you still can practice attending. Yeah. 
this seems important to understand, particularly for psychological folks. Don't be um, scared by these uh, Pali words. There is a profound <laughs> contemplative wisdom behind these words. And when we tease out the layers and layers that are packed into these terms, we will recognize this quite easily. I don't need to convince you that there is such a thing as friendliness. You all know that. Yeah? The question is, how do I find that friendliness when I'm not feeling friendly? Yeah? When what I normally feel friendly to is not here and what I normally feel averse to is here. You know? How do I find it? So I not just need friendliness, I need a skill to bring about friendliness. That's more than auto-suggestion or a prayer or, you know, wish, may I, if only I would be more friendly. Yeah? That doesn't make you more friendly, in fact. Most, such, most of such wishes carry a grain of deficiency in them, you know. And you, while voicing that wish, you also affirm the notion of deficiency. So it's important to just say, I can do that. I can orient towards something. I can let it in. I can acknowledge its presence. I can, instead of habitually uh, reacting to it with disinterest or with blocking it out or with turning away, I can actually intentionally turn towards and do what I wouldn't do normally and just abide in non-hostility. I told you this is the cheapest version of metta, is non-hostility the offer of coexistence. When we're at the resonating stage, we're already with Karuna in some way, with uh, the notion of compassion, the capacity that particularly resonates with the aspect of pain and dissatisfaction in another being. It's probably our most profound connection to other humans. Um, in fact, even to non-humans, it is probably our most connection. Yeah. We can, from an understanding of our own pain, from a profound wish to avoid pain ourselves, we can very quickly relate to somebody else's pain. It seems to take quite some closeness to somebody that you can resonate with their success and with their joy. But connecting with somebody else's pain can happen across ethnicities, across cultures, across religions. It can happen with people whom you don't like. Yeah? It's not about sympathy. Empathy is not about sympathy. That's an important one. You can be empathetic with people whom you don't like. You don't need to love everybody and just become yeah, gooey. That's why these Brahma-viharas as emotions are just short sold and also we become deficient because so often we don't have control over our emotions. Yeah. It takes a lot of practice to, to uh, engender emotions that are not here or to hold and handle and transform emotions that are here. Depending on what your background is, you get more of this sort and more of the other sort. But this cannot be fixed from an emotional plane. Yeah. It has to involve a, a bigger picture picture of attentional habits, patterns, and intentional skills. That's where we have most choices, where we and how we give attention to something. If we have a freedom anywhere, it is there. Where we give attention, how we give attention. I'm quite convinced that this is the most precious thing I have to offer, and this is the most precious thing I look forward in others, is the quality and the attunedness or the attunement of attention. I know I have nothing better to offer to anybody than the quality and the attunement of my attention. I guess that is the most precious things human beings can offer to each other. You know, some of them are maybe more brilliant in their responses and others are more, uh, you know, steadfast in their reliability. Third ones are more strong or so, but uh, if I don't have some kind of attunement and some kind of quality and some consistency in attention of somebody else, my relationship is gonna, is gonna be affected on all levels, yeah? on all levels. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether you train this attentional skill for yourself or with others. If you train it with yourself, it becomes 
accessible for others. If you train it with others, it becomes accessible for yourself. Once you have learned what you're doing, you will have understood how to transform the dynamic so that it works. What was working inside works outside, and what was working outside works inside. But for that, we need to not just do it. Sometimes we do things without knowing that we do them. We need to learn the dynamic of what we do. That's often a harder task. We need to figure out what we actually do. You know, in my books, my ideal scenario for teaching meditation would be, you guys know nothing about meditation and we could just start at zero. Yeah? But you guys know lots of meditation and mindfulness. You have lots of opinions. You don't tell me. But whatever I say, you're going to hear that filtered through your opinions. In fact, I suspect you of not hearing the things you don't want to hear and of hearing only the things you want to hear, which um, is hard work as a teacher. You know? I want you to listen, but at the same time, I want you to not just listen to your own filters. Yeah? I would like you to listen to some potentially new things, even things that you don't like. And yet, I'm, I've been listening enough myself, and I know, you know, you can, you primarily listen to yourself, isn't it? You listen to your own perceptual apparatus, to your own commentaries, to your own... Um, some of us listen more to the things we like to see or hear, you know, that's the, the greed type, and some of us listen more to the things we don't like and we fear and we are... We're, we're, um, we're averse to, that's more the, the hate, the hatred temperament. But basically we keep accessing the world, even when we learn, through the filters of our own perceptual apparatus. And that apparatus is there in place because of a history we have. And because we only know parts of this history. We may know about the existence of such filters, but we still may not know the precise nature of their, their, their way of working. So, connecting to others is powerful because it shows us a way of how we are in the world. The way I react to you, even if I don't get you, tells me something about what's going on with me. Yeah. So we learn with others about ourselves. We learn about ourselves and this becomes useful for our being with others. That's why meditation is not selfish. Even if you sit here for a week and contemplate the nature of your universe and of your mind and somebody is holding the front back home. Yeah. It's not a selfish activity because when you take that into your job, into your relationship, into your life, basically you heighten the degree of consciousness wherever you are. That's why you need to do this. You, I know you're all teachers and uh, you know there's a... It's one thing to be a skilled pedagogue or a skilled uh, apply yourself in didactic craftsmanship, but that, that will not be 10% of the worth that your own practice and the depth of your own understanding of your own mind, not of other people's pathology, your, your own pathologies and virtues will bring to your con conveying this mindfulness stuff to others. So let us continue. Karuna, or trembling along, being able to resonate with the pain of others is something that is very quickly accessible. As soon as, we, as, soon as I have an access to that which is painful in, in your life, I begin to relate to you in, in some way with greater solidarity. Um, when I feel different from you, when I recognize that you are afraid from pain as I am, you try to avoid loss as I am, you have no control over your life as I am, then I recognize in you a fellow human being, a fellow sufferer, somebody who is in the same boat with me. Yeah. For me, this is the most profound way of transforming aversion and anger, recognizing the aspects of pain and dissatisfaction in your life. The tr commentarial tradition um, makes a point that the major antidote for uh, aversion and rejection is the practice of metta. 
That is only partially true. Uh, my own unenlightened opinion on this that the commentary's only got half of it there. Um, it is true, metta is a fabulous prophylactic for aversion and hatred and ill will. If the mind is not in aversion and hatred and ill will and practices metta, it will become less susceptible to uh, those uh, negative qualities. But if your mind already is in aversion, it is very difficult to convince a mind that is averse to actually be loving or friendly. So for me, a much more powerful uh, technique for intervention, in other words, when aversion or ill will has arisen, is the channel of compassion. Because when I see you with pain, when I see that which is not perfect in your life, when I see that which hurts you, when I see that which is leaving you discontent, when I see your fear or your losses, then I somehow can no longer make you completely different from myself. Yeah. I can no longer completely make you the, the other out there, yeah? the enemy, the, the one I have nothing to do with. I suddenly acknowledge that we share something. In fact, it is very likely that you share with your worst enemies more than you would ever admit. Yeah? If you allow yourself to dwell on hateful perceptions, obviously you do not admit that. But if you look at this, that your worst enemy is likely to have losses in his or her life, likely to be subject to illness, subject to um, uh, forms of injustice and abuse, forms of um, pain, uh, forms of dissatisfaction, that he or she will have disappointed hopes, uh, will have been experiencing betrayal and uh, slight. And suddenly that enemy somehow begins to resemble you in some strange way. And I'd, I've always felt that this connects me a lot more deeply than trying to uh, gloss over my aversion with a few meta thoughts or so, kind of, yeah, grumble, 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 may she be well, may she be well, may she be well. Yeah. I've always thought of this sounds like to me like, uh, like sugarcoating a cow pad, basically. You know, it, it gets a sugarcoat, but it, you know, not too deep down, it becomes a cow pad again. Yeah? So it doesn't truly transform. Yeah. The power of metta as a, a quality to counteract aversion and ill will lies in its prophylactic power. In other words, it primes the mind in ways that make it less susceptible for um, aversion, for ill will. Mudita is an interesting one because it, um, it's the least uh, famous in some way. Um, the capacity to resonate, karuna, and mudita are both forms uh, of resonance. Yeah? One of them is particularly with the dimension of pain and suffering and dissatisfaction in another's life. And mudita is the opposite. It's the resonance with success. It has a turbulent quality or celebratory quality. And this uh, we experience less often than we experience compassion. It seems to be less spontaneous, and it seems to be in need of a greater closeness to the person we're resonating with. Um, often our spontaneous reaction when other people experience success is not sympathetic joy, but it's envy or <laughs> jealousy or, or, or some kind of, why she, you know, it would have been my turn, or, or God. I know what she knows, and I do that a lot longer than she does, or something like that, yeah? So we often spontaneously, rather than admiring and resonating with the joyous dimension in the success or in the, you know, the, the good thing that happened in somebody else's life, we make a self-statement and declare ourselves to be deficient, yeah? In view of what this person right now celebrates, and then we create some kind of justification and comparison. And then we compare them unfavorably with ourselves. And what, they, what is their success then becomes a, a basic a, a systemic injustice. Yeah? <laughs> and we lose on both counts. We lose on the count of actually experiencing joy. And we also harden our self-construct, which is now a little bit more deficient. Yeah? Because something that we would have been entitled to, we didn't get. Yeah. 
So we're not just didn't we get that, but we're also aware of an injustice and we're left with a little more solidified self. Yeah? So it's a kind of double loss. It's a true lose-lose. Uh, Mudita is powerful. It is connected with forms of gratitude. It is, form, it is connected with forms of appreciation. It is uh, connected with the, the capacity to actually recognize good things. Yeah. One of the greatest suffering of, of, our, of our deficient brains and one of the sufferings of my deficient brain is what... Uh, uh, the neurofolk call negative perceptual bias, you know, this strange pattern that we seem to hold the things that we don't like and that seem to have gone wrong in our lives, that we give them greater weight in our memory, not just in our experience, but most tragically in our memory. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense you know, in terms of evolution. You know, you remember the bad things so that you can pass on the, mo the news about the bad things so that your offspring can learn from this. But unfortunately, what makes sense in evolutionary terms doesn't make at all sense in terms of happiness. Yeah? Evolution is not concerned with happiness. Evolution is only concerned with multiplication and survival. It's not concerned with awakening. So things that can be useful in terms of evolution may be utterly useless in terms of happiness and awakening. Or they're just not touched. Yeah? We can be highly successful at surviving and be perfectly miserable doing so. It doesn't stop human beings from having children and offspring. If you look at the, our statistics, then we're not looking very good. I don't need to tell you. Uh, there's a lot of unhappiness in our societies. Affluent societies particularly seem to produce a lot of documented unhappiness. Child suicide rates, pharmacological consumption, 40% of the people calling themselves depressed at any one time in their lives. You know, these are not statements of happiness. And they have something to do with um, how we construe ourselves. We're obviously not starving from hunger in, this, in these latitudes. It's rare that people starve here from hunger. It's not impossible, but it's rare. So, um, you know, we, had, we would have all reason to be a lot more happy than most of us would probably declare themselves to be. And Mudita has a few things to offer. Connecting with the joy in other people's lives strengthens the, the muscles of smiling. It uh, gives the necessary uh, connections in our brain. Uh, Christina was telling me two days ago that people injecting Botox have an, an inferior chance of experiencing uh, end or final release because some of the, the subtle facial muscles that you paralyze through Botox actually have a feedback loop to producing the endorphins which make you more happy. Yeah? <laughs> so even by blocking the nerve endings here and looking a bit more smooth, you, 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 you may look better and yet you may be more miserable in the process. <laughs> So the capacity to resonate, the capacity to appreciate, the capacity to gratitude and to basically enjoy yeah, is a big, it's a big point. If you know any miserable awakened ones, I wouldn't believe that awakening. You know? People who I believe have realization are people who have been uh, tremendously happy and tremendously capable of connectedness and they pick up what's going on around them. They're not some kind of dried up meditation mummies with moss growing out of their ears because they don't move anymore or so. Yeah? <laughs> so these uh, Brahma Viharas are forms of expression of life, yeah? relational life. They're not just things I do unto myself. The fourth one, equanimity, in many ways is the most misunderstood one. It is a quality that is relational. It's not indifference. It means I care. And yet I understand that what has manifested for you is not just up to me to create or to respond, to be responsible of. It leaves the other in his or her self-reliance intact. 
It acknowledges that even a miserable, horrible situation holds the potential for transformation or for good in some way. It acknowledges that my strength has boundaries, that I cannot do everything. Therapists particularly need upeka. Otherwise, uh, no understanding of upeka, a, a job that makes you systematically exposed to need and suffering, is a recipe for burnout, basically. Yeah. So upeka is... It's not that you're unshakable and nothing gets to you and you have such a thick skin that basically however miserable anybody can be, you know, you can handle it. That's the close enemy to Upeka. Of that in a moment. Uh, upeka is a profound relatedness and yet an acknowledgement of the conditionality that takes place in your life and in my life. And there are some things I can do for you there are some things I cannot do for you. Yeah. And I have to, in some way, reconcile with that. Yeah. Without guilt-tripping, without uh, going into my helper syndrome, without um, um, hating you because you don't get better. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we can't make feel people better, and we, we either f corroborate our own helplessness in this, or, or we... Uh, we get annoyed because we do everything for them and they still don't get better. Yeah, that occasionally happens uh, in therapy. Or we turn away. We become cynical and thick-skinned and you know, kind of resignated and write them off. Says, well, therapy is nothing worth. I'm nothing worth. These guys are nothing worth. You know, let's give them drugs. <laughs> so. It's not just a lifesaver, it's an indispensable acknowledgement that there are many things I can do, and yet there are things I cannot do. And I have to not just teeth-grittingly acknowledge this, I have to reconcile with this in some way. And it also is a, acknowledges past and future. You know, there are things that have, have conditionalities in them that make that something occurs as it occurs right now, and I can't just help you snap out of it for, you know. Some things need to be held. Some things need, cannot be resolved. And there must be a place, and that place is equanimity, that allows me to be in there, connected with you, with your pain, and with the imperfect, without losing the notion of the possibility for perfection, the possibility for health, the possibility for healing beyond the cure, maybe. Yeah. Maybe that's the last thing I can do from my, my equanimous point, is that I can hold a vision of your health yeah. in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of my apparent helplessness. So equanimity is really a big issue. These um, Brahma Viharas have Images. The commentaries speak of images. First one, Metta, there's all mother images. The first one, Metta, speaks of the image of a mother that is basically in love with her newborn child. The focus is easy. Uh, that child, every movement, every expression is basically registered and related to in a lovingly, lovingly and affectionately. Yeah. It's not difficult. The second image, Karuna, this is the mother who does everything to help a sick child. Maybe she sacrifices night sleep, maybe she procures medicine, maybe she uh, bones up on medical knowledge, maybe she uh, calls in experts beyond her own capacities, maybe she's willing to inflict pain on the child because the treatment may need pain or maybe against the express wish of the child. Yeah? And still she's willing to do that because she knows that this child needs help right now and she connects with the deeper need of the child rather than the whim or its dislike. The image for Mudita is a mother that celebrates the successes of her child growing up. You know? First words, first steps, first time tying the shoelaces on your own, college degree and so forth. Yeah? So you can take it, it's the, it's the jubilant quality, the celebratory quality, the pride of something developing, yeah. 
The fourth image is the image of a, a mother that has <clears throat> children that are grown up and she has to let go control. She has to accept that these children now not just make their own choices but have to make their own choices. The mother obviously cares and supports and quite a few things she knows better and she would maybe even make better choices than the children do. But still, she knows, even by making better choices, she would only weaken the capacity to make choices for their children. She would weaken the self-confidence and she would maybe deprive her child of a learning experience. So it's that delicate moment when she's all caring and all supportive, but no longer in charge, no longer the one who makes choices. Yeah. 